We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I drew. That's raw. Are you doing raw? I'm good. How are you? Oh wow, you seem a little bit, a little bit low key, a little bit, uh, a little bit easy going, casual yeah, raw after me. hours. Just taking it easy. Yeah, it is. We're recording an hour later, so I'm basically, I'm already on island time, baby. You are. You're, you're wearing a smoking jacket and, uh, and cheetah skin slippers. It's very, very alluring. Uh, we were going to talk about sports this week as we normally do. However, da, 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 da. we have to have a very special distraction episode this week because our guest is Adam Conover, host of The G Word on Netflix, and Adam Ruins Everything on HBO Max, and the Factually podcast, wherever you get your podcast. More importantly, right now, he's also a member of the Writers Guild of America West Board, and he's on their negotiating committee. So today we're going to have, we're going to talk extensively with Adam about the WGA strike that's going on right now. I'm a member of the WGA myself. Roth, you used to be a member of it. You are no longer so I am also on strike, but it's Strike Talk 2023. Adam, hello. Hello. Uh, welcome. God damn it. I'm so hoarse from being on the picket line. <laughs> it's, to- it's totally hello. okay. We can we can always do pickups. It's fine. Okay, great. my God. What an honor to have Harvey Firestein on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've been chanting and cheering so much, and then the, the frog comes up in my throat without me uh, expecting it. But do your voice is real, man. I'm that This is a proof of concept right here. You are yeah. not hanging out in a in a boardroom waiting for the other side's lawyer to come back. You are also <laughs> annoying them outside of their studios, which is good. Where have you been picketing? Can I ask? I always uh, like these. I've mostly been picketing in front of Netflix. That's that's the hottest picket in town. Everybody mm-hmm. agrees. That's where all the all the young singles want to go. That's it's more on the east side. That's where all of the really angry writers who, you know, don't have enough money to not just pay their mortgages. They don't have mortgages. They're behind on their rent. They all flock to the Netflix building. That's um, exciting. Do your bosses at Netflix, have they looked out of the window and looked at you specifically and been like, how could you after all we've done for you, Adam? I mean, you know, I pitched the G word in that building and, and it went great. Got a round of applause from the executives and, oh my God, we went right to series. It was uh, terrific. Oh, but- you son of a bitch. They didn't like to stare at you <laughs> and then no, just no, they walk did. out. Okay. Well, I could tell you all about why, you know, uh, the, the way that shows like mine are treated at Netflix is one of the reasons that I uh, I voted to call the strike, um, which I could get into. But while we're out there picketing, you can see the people from Netflix, like looking out the window at us down there, you know, ho- ho- horns are honking. We have tons of solidarity honks from people going by on Sunset Boulevard. And so it must be pretty annoying to work in that building right now. Now, unfortunately, I don't think Ted Sarandos or any of the other people who we actually need to make the decision come down from their ivory towers and bargain with us are are in that building they're probably you know in their mansions zooming in to to fire people remotely that's uh, how but- i do it. absolutely <laughs> yeah that is the challenge with any of this stuff i mean i feel like that's the thing that i've kept coming back to with this because there's been a rash of like the last few productions that were working in new york have been shut down by picket lines i think it was mm-hmm. earlier this week they they got severance which was shooting in the bronx and there's been a bunch in brooklyn too but at some point, it's like you have to wonder what the people in the Netflix building are doing if there's not new shows to make. And I understand <laughs> there's other stuff going on. But if if, if the pipeline of actual uh, creative activity has stopped, then are they just in there like optimizing photographs of Adam Sandler and waiting for <laughs> the people that actually make shit to happen to come back to work? Like. Yeah, I mean, maybe they're planning, uh, oh, maybe we can make this, you know, K-drama go over in the U.S. or or whatever. They probably have some thoughts along those lines. Yeah, I was going to say, just import everything, right? Right. Well, you know, if they could do that, they would have done it years ago. You know, I mean, Squid Game, shows like that. That was a Squid Game was very successful. It was a fluke. There's lots of people who like to watch anime and, you know, other shows made overseas. But... You know, part of our thesis here is that American made media, uh, you know, the stuff that the Writers Guild does, American made films and television shows are still the most valuable media properties in the world. Those are still the ones that the most people around the world want to watch. That's what Americans want to watch, certainly. Um, And, you know, that those are the shows that we have coverage of. So we're not really worried about those uh, foreign shows. And by the way, we also have reciprocity agreements with pretty much every Writers Guild around the world um, in Great Britain and the UK, et cetera. 
Um, but as to what the people are doing in those buildings, yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of thumb twiddling because, you know, there's the, uh, the, the creative executives in those buildings are the people who work with writers. And, you know, they're the ones who say, please send me a script. I need to read a script. And uh, they have no writers to work with right now. And if anybody in that building is sympathetic, it's probably those people because those are the people who actually understand how hard writing is because they read a lot of bad writing and they need to find good <laughs> writers. They're like, oh my God, I'm supposed to get a script for the new fucking, you know, uh, I don't know, Hasbro uh, battleship television show or whatever. <laughs> and the script is ass. And where do I find a good writer? You know, um, and God, can I get one to work on this show? The but, Hungry uh, Hungry Hippos limited series is not yeah, very exactly. well scripted. <laughs> this is really disappointing to hear. <laughs> um, I'd like to actually go back um, yeah. before the strike. I want to go back to 2008 because um, that was the last WGA strike. It was. And one of the key issues of that strike, along with DVD residuals, which is hilarious <laughs> in retrospect, was how writers were going to be paid for any work they did for streaming programs. And this was at a time when streaming content basically consisted of like amateur YouTube videos, like Charlie bit my finger and all that horrible shit, right? Mm -hmm. So what did the WGA want specifically from studios in 2008 with regards to streaming? And what did they end up getting so that was like a historic strike in the Writers Guild. Um, and an interesting thing about unions, by the way, is every union is a nation with its own history. So you talk to anybody from their union and they'll be like, oh, let me tell you what happened in 2005. It changed everything. In 2007, the Writers Guild uh, went on strike for coverage of the internet, which is what we now call streaming, um, so for, the, for the Writers Guild to have jurisdiction over those shows. So we saw, and I wasn't in the union at the time, but I'll, I'll use the word we for convenience. Um, you know, we saw that the, the networks were putting shows on streaming. Um, uh, I, the Office was on sale on iTunes. The Daily Show was extremely popular on YouTube. And uh, we, we saw that trend. Um, and in the, our contracts with the companies, it did not require them to make shows that were made for the internet under a Writers Guild contract. And so we were fighting to make sure that when NBC or Disney made shows directly for the internet, those would have to be Writers Guild shows. And that is what they didn't want to budge on. And that's what we won. And we won in the strike, not just that, we won it for every other union in Hollywood because all the other unions were able to, to then go in and make similar agreements. Um, and so if we hadn't gone on strike then, uh, you know, every show from House of Cards to The Mandalorian would be produced non-union. No one would be, would be receiving residuals. No one would be receiving health and pension contributions, meaning they wouldn't get health care uh, from the show. Uh, and so it really was uh, an important battle. And, and, you know, that was about 15 years ago. And everybody in the Guild now, you know, most Guild members were not there for the strike at this point, I believe. Right. Um, but but all of us know that, you know, we only have coverage of streaming. We only have health and pension because writers in the past were willing to go on strike and take that risk. And we know it's our turn now. Um, okay. I want, I want to ask you two questions in the wake of that. That strike, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was notable, uh, at least to me, for how divisive it was among writers, specifically high-profile guys. Mm -hmm. Like John Ridley, he penned a big LA Times op-ed about it. And South Park creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who already had an internet deal in place with Comedy Central by the time that strike happened. And I remember there was a South Park episode that was ostensibly about that strike, but it was about like Canada going on strike. And the wrap-up, <laughs> the wrap-up was a speech, it was the you know, the lesson learned speech from either Kyle or Stan. And they said, and I'm gonna quote, I'm gonna quote the speech in full. They said, We thought we could make money on the internet, but while the internet is new and exciting for creative people. It hasn't matured as a distribution mechanism to the extent that one should trade real and immediate opportunities for income for the promise of future online revenue. It'll be a few years before digital distribution can be monetized to the extent that necessitates content producers to forego their fair value in more traditional media. Now you have to, you know, you have this, to is, this is in a South Park food. episode. This was at <laughs> yeah. the end of the South Park episode. Yeah. <laughs> Great stuff though. I mean, you can see why it's in there because even if you don't agree with the politics and the laughs, it just gets you right in the laugh <laughs> basket, you know? So, um, so do you feel as if writers are much more unified this go around? And do you, do you feel like they it was divisive back in, uh, 2007, 2008, or was it just those high profile guys like Parker and Stone making a fuss? Well, first of all, Parker and Stone were wrong. 
right? Like, like what they they're were, saying. They were, what they're they were obviously wrong within like two years. They were obviously wrong. Yeah, but yeah. And you know, they're they're like libertarian anarchist, you know, idiots. Great writers, um, but uh, uh, you know, they're. Uh, by the way, I don't know if they're currently even guild members. Like South Park is not a writers guild show. Um, oh and, really? Uh, yeah. I don't think. I don't think I knew because that I, I, I just looked it up two days ago and I don't believe that it is. I didn't even know you could have a non-guild show. Like, did wouldn't the WGA be like, no, you uh, can't do that? So animation is a little bit of a uh, gray area in our coverage where we don't cover as much animation as even our writers, you know, wish that we did. Um, so many, many adult animated shows are Writers Guild, but some are not. I mean, that's incredible because I remember watching a Comedy Central doc about how south park was made yeah it's a great documentary and it's a great documentary but also like making the show was fucking torture like yeah you know they're they're crunching they're doing you know they're doing yeah the they're, they're crunching they're crunching that's a sweatshop environment you know and it's it's impressive in this macho way but it grinds people down and you know if they if those two guys you know were working with the union they would have some limitations placed on how they could use writers that they might not like but that would ensure that those writers are paid better and have better working conditions. But as to your question about uh, the, how united the Guild is, the Guild is enormously united this go-around. You know, in 2007, the Guild hadn't been on strike in 20 years. The previous strike in 1988 had been a failure because, uh, the, you know, the... Uh, uh, the, the guild was even more divided then. Uh, the guild went on strike for six months and didn't get anything uh, because of uh, it was it was a very different union that was managed in a very different way. Um, and then for 20 years after that, the guild is very company friendly. It was a very, hey, let's just be quiet and nice, treat the companies nice kind of guild. In about 2006, oh, 2007. Real Upshaw energy right there. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say. A lot of a lot of unions in Hollywood still take that tack. A lot of unions around the country still take that tack. But in 2006, the union had a political revolution that said we need to get militant. We need to wield member power again. And that was still very new. But the 2007 strike was a victory because we won coverage of the Internet. And members now know if they work for a Netflix show, that's the only reason they have health care is because of that strike. Um, and we've got that institutional memory and we've been building that culture. And so, you know, we got a. 98% vote in favor of authorizing the strike. Um, we've had our biggest showrunners um, step away from their shows. You know, uh, we, we called the strike and, the, and the, the showrunners of Stranger Things said, we're not producing any Stranger Things, uh, for example. It's one of the biggest shows on streaming. Um, I mean, and- it's Netflix's biggest show by far. Right? It's their Super Bowl, right? And right. they don't get any more episodes of it until uh, they make a deal with the writers. They don't get that new burst of subscribers they always get when a new Stranger Things comes out. That's their biggest thing of the year. And so hopefully that'll that'll inspire them to come back to the table. But yeah, we're, we're, we're super united, more than we've ever been in the past. Did the WGA win enough back in 2007, 2008? Because I'm going to bring up Bill Simmons here specifically so I can make fun of him. Because right after that strike ended, he wrote... Hollywood's biggest BS story of the year, <laughs> other than everyone in the Writers Guild pretending they liked how the strike turned out. Now, do you think Simmons was being tone deaf when he said that? Because he usually is. Or was there real dissatisfaction among the rank and file with that deal once that strike ended? I love that you're bringing up this history. So, um, uh, yes, there was some dissatisfaction. I think there'll always be dissatisfaction to some degree when a strike ends. Um, but... It, the the strike ended under not great circumstances. And since, uh, Drew, since you know your strike history, I'm going to share with you some history that I don't share in a lot of interviews, okay? Ooh, yeah, two, skip it. two things happened, okay? One was that while the Writers Guild was on strike, the DGA, the Directors Guild, went in and made a deal with the studios. And the studios do that specifically because then they can say, well, the DGA took this, you have to take it too. Right. It's called pattern bargaining. Um, And uh, that was uh, that's a that's a technique they use almost every single year, but they used it in the strike. And so the DJ actually went in and made a deal for the Internet and for residuals covering the Internet that we thought was substandard, you know, Um, and the, the, the companies tried to pressure us to take it. We got the coverage, but we wanted to hold out for better residuals. Simultaneously, though, something that happened that year 
and this is not going to happen again this year because we're much more united. But something that happened that year is that about 30 big showrunners came to the guild after the DGA made their deal and said, we're going to walk. We're going to, you know, we're going to go back to work if you don't take the DGA deal. This was like in the press at the time. They were referred to as the Dirty 30 because they were, this was, you know, an anti-solidarity thing to do. But they basically forced an early end to the strike. And there was a widespread feeling that if we had held out for a couple extra weeks, we would have gotten a better deal. Um, and so, but uh, at the same time, there were other guild members who wanted to go back even earlier, right? Um, but I, I also want to put some of this in context, okay? That was what happened in 2007. The guild hadn't struck for 20 years. We had, we had just had, we had just tried to put this new culture of using member power in place. And what year was it? 2007, early 2008, what had not happened yet? The financial crisis. Yeah. It was high times. It was those, it was those heady post 9-11 days when everyone was, was feeling so good. Um, you know, people were like, why should we go on strike for this speculative future thing, right? Right now, we have something very different happening, which is everybody is getting squeezed. The companies uh, led by the streamers have spent the last 10 years trying to push down the power of labor, trying to take away the money from the creators who actually make the shows trying to make the show, like no showrunner in LA or New York right now is happy. None of them are saying, oh my God, I'm making so much money. My life is so great. They're all saying they took away my writers. I don't get writers to have to get to come to set anymore. They're paying me. They're not paying me my writer's fee during post. So I'm not getting my healthcare contributions. Like they are like the people at the top of the writer's guild are getting screwed. And so are the people at the bottom. Um, and by the way, so are actors, so are directors, so are producers. Like we have producers coming to us and saying, you got to go win, win one for us because Netflix has taken away my ability to make a living. And, you know, it's, it's been billionaires screwing millionaires and everybody all the way down. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, people feel that. Uh, and also the public feels it at large. Uh, it, it really matches with the economic picture that everyone's feeling where, hey, we've got like really low unemployment, but nobody can actually make a living. This aligns with something that that Michael Schur said in when he was on with us, and I know he's on the the committee with you. And we broke this out as a as a little mini ep after the strike actually happened because I I kept going back and thinking about it, and sometimes even like listening to the episode. I think it's really clarifying, like what you were saying in terms of how this rhymes with the broader experience of being a working person, basically in any sector of the economy right now. Like yeah. obviously, this is one that is lucky enough to have this strong union and strong union tradition. And right now, like really, you know, historic solidarity among it, among that community. There's also this sense though, and this is what, what Sher was saying, that like the demands of the investor class that is controlling all of this, which is basically for a value neutral 8% return every year, regardless, like just get there however you get there, but it needs to be 8%. And if it's not, then that is failure. Th that seems to militate against not just, you know, happy workers living dignified lives, although obviously that's like an important little parenthetical because like that should be the goal of an economy, in my opinion. It also seems at this point to be making it much harder to actually make the products that would mm -hmm. notionally bring in that money. Yeah. Like, has that like how has that sort of like colored the way I mean in terms of like certainly if a producer is like pulling up I'm imagining in a Lamborghini and being like you got to go win this one for me bro like then that suggests that there's <laughs> fucking Scott more being like solidarity yeah you fuck. I'm, I'm gonna throw this stapler at you but it's out of love and it's out of solidarity and support <laughs> there's to me like to what extent is like that pressure forcing like people to sort of like understand this industry differently than they have in your, I mean, you haven't been in it forever, but you've been around for a yeah. minute. How yeah. different does it feel? It feels really different. I mean, what the, what the companies have done is they have destroyed the norms that made the, the industry successful for a hundred years that made all of them rich. Right. And those norms are things like allowing the talent or the high level producers even to participate in the profit of a show. One of the first things that Netflix did, and by the way, this is not what the writers Guild is on strike about, but to give you a little bit of a picture. One of the first things Netflix did was they said, Hey, no more back end participation. You don't get 5% of the profits anymore. If you're no a more producer points? or you're a I don't get points, no more points. Boom. Now they give you a bonus. Points. 
they give you a bonus up front. They say, oh, here's an extra however much money, right? Okay. Depending on, you know, if you're Leonardo DiCaprio, maybe you make a couple extra million. If you're a producer, maybe you make an extra hundred grand. If you're a writer, maybe you make an extra 50K, right? Um, but uh, that was at the beginning. That's what they were offering people in 2017. People don't get that bonus anymore, but they still don't get the backend participation. So you've got like this very high level talent, both on the producing side and the writing side and, and acting and everything else who are no longer seeing a participation in the profits and they're going, what's going on? Then when you talk about how the actual shows are made, okay? And by the way, I just want to be very clear. The back-end thing's not what we're on strike for. It's just a it's just a side issue since we're talking about the producers. A symptom. Um, but it's a symptom, yeah. It's part of the trend. Um, but let's talk about what the Writers Guild is actually on strike about. Uh, uh, a thing that you may have heard of is the writer's room, <laughs> right? Where in order to write a television show, you get a bunch of writers together. They spend a couple months breaking the story, taking notes, writing all the scripts. And then as those scripts are being written, they go start to shoot them. And the writers go to set and they make edits on the, you know, on the script while they're uh, on the set, right? They, they work with the actors. They work with the director. Then there's post. Post. The showrunner, who's a writer, goes into post and there's writing happening in post as well, where they say, oh, we need to cut this scene. We need to write some new lines of, of dialogue to record via ADR, stuff like that. That is how television has been made for 50 years. However, none of that is in our contract. It's not in our minimum basic agreement, uh, which is what we negotiate. It's just over like a best years. practices thing. Basically, it's just right? a best practices. Exactly. Well, is that a mistake? Was that a mistake that the Guild then made to not cover that previously? Well, it's uh, you could make that argument, but it, there was no need to because it was woven into the shape of the industry. You know, it's sort of like uh, if you think about the history of like, a, you know, industrial anything. Right. Like, hey, we need two guys here to work the, the lathe or whatever. As long as lathes exist, you need those two guys. Right. But if the company eventually comes in and says, hey, we're not going to use lathes anymore. We've got some new method. Right. Then you start needing to like protect your, uh, 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 you know, protect your basis. Yeah. This um, is the part that well, I said the same thing when we were talking to Michael Schur about it. But it is all of it seems like this isn't an unreasonable thing to expect either because you're going into it with the presumption that like, all right, well, we all want to make a good show. Right. Like we yeah. want to do the best job that we can. And the thing that works best is. You have the writers do, you know, what they do, then they go to set, then they do your rewrites, whatever. Correct. In this case, though, it's like, if what if the people that are in charge of it don't care about the show anymore? Then the it. lever that you're pulling isn't fucking attached to anything. And that's like a really, and we had that experience, you know, with Jim yep. Spanfeller, but it's like, it's nothing more disorienting than that. We're yeah. just sort of like, well, we're not only are we not on the same team, like, we're not even trying to do the same shit anymore. Yeah. Well, if I may interrupt for just a moment, I did some quicker research, Adam, when you're talking about the Dirty 30, that group of writers that uh, that sold out the WGA uh, and wanted them to take the Director's Guild. One of those members, Aaron Sorkin. What a shock. Who, <laughs> who could have fucking guessed? Okay, Look, <laughs> I, I, you're not going to hear me talk badly about any other guild members today because yeah, but right now we're all united, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a new day, right? And I also want to make very clear, by the way, um, in 2007, not every union in town was on our side. This year, every single one is. That's um, right. The DGA is on our side. IATSE is on our side. sag is on our side because they've all felt this. You know what? You clearly got what I was driving at. The companies have tried to destroy those norms. They have destroyed the writer's room. They're trying to eliminate it entirely. And when we go to them and say... These shows are going to be worse if you do that. Literally, we make that argument in the room with them. They say, we don't care. It would cost too much money to have writer's rooms. Um, and the folks in IATSE are facing the same thing in the crew union. Um, their norms are being destroyed. The directors are facing it. Actors are facing it. Um, and that's part of why we're so united is because these companies have shown a willingness. It's the, it, it is absolutely the Spanfeller thing that you're talking about because it's the new money comes in. They demand cuts in order to juice the profits. So they cut shit to the bone and they cut the shit that's been working and making them rich for 50 years in order to chase a short-term profit. And we're the ones who are saving the industry from itself saying, hold on a second. Don't fucking do this. It, there needs to be a writer's room because that's how you fucking make television. Yeah. That's how we get paid. And that's how you get a good show. It's just disappointing. That's so little fucking respect for the product. Yeah. Cord Jefferson had a, a tweet to this effect this morning that it's basically like you can see how little regard they have, not just for the audience, but for the actual work of it, where if they're just like, yeah, we're going to have like four people in a fucking zoom room, write a show in two months and like that's going to be that like you know what you're going to get if you're doing that like and it's not going to be as good as if you let 
people do the thing that worked that delivered it. But if you regard it as just like more, you know, stuff to fill the trough so that people can sort of line up and blindly gulp it down, then like then it wouldn't matter. It's just tough because it's obviously no one gets into the business of doing this stuff because they want to produce something that sucks. Yeah. And nobody watches television that they think sucks. You know, like people don't love people. There's a reason reality shows are not more popular than uh, scripted television because people know that reality shows are swill and sometimes they're happy to guzzle swill while they fold laundry. Mm, But in general, yeah, wallpaper. (laughs) But in general, that's not what people want. People want something that is made with, you know, craft and art and care. Um, that's what they sit down. That is what they subscribe to Netflix or to HBO to watch. I did know, I did someone, and I, I, I'm i sorry I don't have attribution here, but someone did note studios demanding second screen shows, shows that you could watch while you're also looking at your phone, which is like, <laughs> I want to be like, oh my God, that's terrible. But also I'm a guy who will watch a basketball game and scroll through Twitter at the exact same yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, that's what sports is. Yeah. Let's, right? uh, we, got to, we do have to take a break. We're going to come right back with Adam Conover. But before we leave, I just want to say that this podcast is sponsored by Danny Needs a Man, Freebo's craziest new reality show. Danny Akerlich is single, sassy, and not afraid to speak her mind. Is any man out there ready to handle her truth? Find out over the course of 52 absolutely fucking wild two-hour episodes. That's Danny Needs a Man. And you need her only on Freebo. We'll be right back with Adam Freebo. <laughs> I believed that was real. Yeah. Until until we got to Freebo. We are sponsored this week by Sunsoil, a certified organic employee-owned CBD oil company from Vermont. We love them because they were down for defector from the jump, but I personally love them, you know, in the way that you love a friend who helps you sleep because I use their products and they work really well for me. I've used a tincture, you know, just put a little bit under your tongue, feel chilled out, and I've been more recently using their gummies. I prefer the berry flavor. And they have worked really well in a way that other CBD products and melatonin have not in terms of helping me feel relaxed, go to sleep properly, sleep properly, and then wake up not feeling logy or messed up, which it turns out is what their products are meant to do. They're meant to help you relax, fall asleep, and stay asleep. They grow all their hemp and make their CBD oil at the farm by naturally infusing hemp in coconut oil, which involves minimal processing and better retains the whole plant benefits. Sunsoil's CBD gummies are vegan, gluten-free, and USDA-certified organic, which is the highest standard for quality and traceability. They don't contain any artificial sweeteners or unnecessary additives like food coloring, and you can choose between berry, uh, lemonade, and cinnamon flavors, all of which I'm sure are very good. Get 50% off your first purchase at sunsoil.com slash distraction with code distraction. That's sunsoil.com slash distraction with code distraction for 50% off your first purchase. And we're back with Adam Conover talking about the WGA strike. Adam, prior to the strike, could you give us an idea of what the life of an average TV writer in Hollywood was like? Like if I'm a staff writer on a Hulu show, what am I taking home yearly? Assuming I'm not like an EP, assuming that I am the lowest right. level staffer. Like what the am I, I add to that is what kind of catering do you get? Yeah. Yeah. Do I, <laughs> uh, yeah. Also, do I get craft services? Cause that's important. <laughs> Look, well, first of all, let me just say that's extremely variable depending on who you write for, you know. Um, For instance, on none of my shows have we ever had lunch paid for in the room. And that's like a very standard thing a lot of TV writers expect is paid for lunch. It's just like been a perk for for 30 years. And it's not something any of my shows have ever been able to afford. Did you at least get the endless LaCroix in the... In the staff yes. room fridge? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And by the way, there's an argument to be made that TV writers are behind the popularity of LaCroix um, because uh, there was an article, I think, in Vox a couple years ago because uh, – basically the ground zero seems to have been the parks and rec writers room where Joe Mandy started tweeting one of the, uh, very oh, yeah, comedy, that's right. right. Yeah. He started tweeting that he was a LaCroix boy. One of the great lost uh, posters of Twitter. He just like slipped to the surly bonds one day and never came oh, yeah. back. But he was, I didn't know he was a uh, LaCroix patient zero. Good for he him. He was, 
many people feel that he was. Uh, and it was like, that was the moment, at least I became aware of LaCroix and it just grew from there. Um, so yes, LaCroix, you have, uh, you have, uh, NBC Mike Sure comedies to thank for, uh, uh, LaCroix. Um, but so look, I can tell you about how things have changed for, for TV writers. Um, uh, well, that, that model that I told you about before, right? Where you're writing and then you're producing and then you're going to the edit. Um, that had, if you were a mid-level writer, it had you paid a couple of different ways. You got paid uh, for every week that you were in the writer's room. You received a fee for every script that you personally wrote. And then you also were paid a producing fee, right? Which is not uh, part of the Writers Guild Union fee. It doesn't go towards your pension and health, but it reflects your producing duties. Were there minimums for all of those? Can you tell us There were the minimums for all of them except the producing duties, right? Okay, but, what, was, what was the minimum for the episode fee and then also for the weekly fee? So, uh, Ooh, I don't know these off the top of my head. It's in, it depends. And it, again, it depends if you're broadcast or cable or streaming, let's say streaming, Generally, let's say streaming. what level you're at. I know broadcast um, pays a fucking mint. So let's say streaming. Uh, I, it, you know, I'm going to say it's like, it's like uh, four to $5,000 a week, which sounds like a very good rate for most people. One thing I do want to remind everyone to remember though, is that in this business, you, you generally spend around twice as much time looking for your next job as you do working any particular job. Right. And you do a ton of free work on the way to get that job. You're doing pitches, you're doing free development, you're writing spec scripts, et cetera. Dude, I worked on uh, a pitch for a year, a literal fucking year. So uh, yeah, I, exactly. I know about I, that, that wheel spinning. Yeah. And so then, you know, you expect, all right, I'm going to make a, a, for the pattern. A lot of people is I'm going to make, you know, 150, $200,000 on this one job. And then that's going to last me two to three years. Um, and, uh, so the things that have happened, um, uh, since then is that, uh, oh, so the last thing about producing fees, I should say, is that's normally where your overscale income is coming from. That's the extra money that your agent negotiates you over the Writers Guild minimum. That's usually your producing fee. That's right? where you get your fuck you money, right? Yeah, exactly. That, okay. That's where, okay, I, you know, this guy's been in the business for 20 years. You got to pay him more than someone who's just started out. That's normally coming as a producing fee. What the companies have done recently is they've started separating writing from production and saying, okay, we are going to have you write the whole show before the show's been picked up. We, we've not actually greenlit it yet. So there's no set to go to. So therefore, we're not gonna pay you your producing fee. Instead, you're only gonna receive the writing fee, which is minimum. Um, uh, and then, uh, so, so you, in, a, in one fell swoop, you've lost half to two thirds of your income. Um, then those mini rooms generally run for less episodes. They run for less weeks. They employ less writers. And so writers have gone from, Hey, you get a, you get a job on a show and that's going to be, you know, eight to 10 months of gainful employment to being, Hey, we're going to have you write for two months and we're going to have you output the same number of scripts, but for much less money for a much shorter amount of time. Now that's narrative television. That's episodic television. Okay. Um, screenwriters, uh, who write for film have their own set of problems. They, they are paid once at the beginning and once at the end, once their final script is delivered. Um, but because 50% of their fee is being held for, you know, until the final delivery, the producers have leverage over those screenwriters to demand like endless rounds of free work. Hey, could you just do one more draft? Hey, could you just do one more draft? Just a few notes came in. Could you do a few more, you know? Oh, so they're uh, not getting paid for those passes? They're not getting paid for those passes. Um, and they're doing they that feel, stuff basically so they can get paid at the end, because if they don't, then they won't. Exactly. Jesus. And they're worried that, well, if they just turn in the draft early and say, you know, fuck you, pay me my money, I'm not doing any more. Well, then they're going to piss off the producer in the studio. They're not going to be good to work with. They're not, so they're not going to be brought back to work on the next movie. Well, also then the script might not be substandard because it hasn't been, you know, it exactly. hasn't gone through revisions and it hasn't been... You know, the Correct. writer hasn't been part of the production process all the way through with those moments, Correct. you know, those brilliant onset moments where an actor comes up with a brilliant line or they need a brilliant line. The actor thinks or the writer thinks of it on the spot, all of that stuff. Yep. And, and you've hit on, you've hit on something good, which is that uh, one of the things the companies exploit is our pride in our work. So, you know, in my own, I've done two television shows. In both cases, I did tons of free work simply because... I care about the show because yeah, my face is on it, man. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I need it to be good. And I also want the network to be happy with it. So we get another season of it. So I will, you know, I've done plenty of drafts when I'm not getting paid on my writer's guild line, right? I'm not getting paid any, any writer's guild health and pension because I want the show to be good. Um, 
And the last thing to tell you about, uh, we have a number of different work areas, and the last one I just want to tell you about is uh, what we call Appendix A, which covers late night, daytime, and soaps. Specifically, late night is what I'll tell you about, because that's the sort of writing I do. That's, right, that's yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, so... What, uh, you know, if you look at the traditional uh, late night writer, they're on a 13 week contract. They're paid, you know, they have a minimum of a couple thousand dollars a week um, and they generally work year round, you know? So that's that, if you are a kind of comedy writer of the type I am, a stand up comedian who loves to write jokes, that's the best job you can possibly get writing for a broadcast, uh, a late night host. Um, and people stay in those jobs for 10 years because of that. But there can also be a lot of turnover. Like I've heard from Tonight Show writers that they yes. use that 13 week window. As a cudgel that they oh, correct. and they like churn the roster. Like basically it's a you yep. it's a fifty week a year job that's on a thirteen week cadence. Correct. That and sucks. And if you and so thirteen weeks is like some security, but it's also precarity, right? Like uh, most most working professionals would not accept thirteen week re ups on their contracts. They would say, "Give me a year," right? Um, I've had severance uh, packages that last longer than yeah, exactly. So that's that's already short, but it's also like a basic guarantee that we have had for seventy years in our contracts okay. since like fucking Jack Parr. That's been the status quo um, on streaming. Comedy Variety and all Appendix A shows have no terms whatsoever. We don't have minimums. We don't have guarantees of how long we can be on. So literally, I went from making uh, a, a show for the smallest channel on basic cable, True TV, to making basically the same show, same format, same style of writing for Netflix, the largest platform in the world. And I was told by the producers in our first production meeting, hey, guess what? We can do whatever we want with writers. We have no minimum salary. We have no, we have no term that we have to employ them for. We could hire one, pay them a dollar a day and fire them the next day. Um, and you know, my blood ran cold. Like, <laughs> did they present that to you as like a good thing? Like, oh, Oh, yeah. like something you'd like. It's so a bunch of cool work, shit we can do. Exactly. You can eat them all, too if you like. We're actually, there's nothing that says you can't eat them. If you want to do yeah. it, we'll cook them up for you. All the other EPs in the room were like, oh goody, they're rubbing their hands together. This sounds great. And I'm sitting there as a Writers Guild member going, this is fucked. And so the the companies, you know, we I was in the negotiating room when we tried, you know, one of our main issues is we're trying to get broadcast or, you know, uh, regular TV terms in streaming that, you know, get the basic productions writers have had for 70 years into streaming. And they said, well, okay, maybe we'll agree to a minimum, but we want to offer you, we, we want it to be a day rate. We, we, it has to be a rate where we bring you in one day and we can fire you the next day. And if we accepted that, that was their best and final. If we accepted that, the type of TV rating I do would cease to exist as a career. It would become something that stand-up comedians do on a Monday or Tuesday in between gigs at the stand-up at the comedy club. It's your Uber driving job. Exactly right. It would, it would be, it, 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 that's what day rate work is. Um, and uh, look, we already have writers in the guild who are taking second jobs, who are driving Uber to make ends meet. Um, and the companies want to enforce that into our contract. And so every type of writer in the guild has an issue like this that is pushing them down in this way. And that is why we are so united this year. And that is why all the unions in town are behind us because they're all facing similar pressures. The thing that's striking to me about this, like just in terms of the the brass balls aspect of it is that so this is it sounds to me like an attempt it's like union busting or at least it's just management doing what it's doing but it's an attempt to like you know put a little like wedge in and then just try to lever and lever and lever to open this window yes. to the extent that they can what's weird about it to me is that like and again this is something that you see anywhere that you might work. I mean, that like, this is bosses are trying to claw stuff back. You know, if you work in a restaurant, they're stealing your tips. Like it's all, there's a million different shitty chiseling ways for this instinct to play itself out. Great What's baffling to me about this is that these unions have existed and been super strong for like going on, you know, more than 50 years. So yeah. it's very Since ballsy to take this very well entrenched process that again, has been like super profitable for everybody involved. And then try to like break it on principle after 50 years of it working a, a certain type of way. Yeah. It's not the same thing as, you know, whatever, like Uber's whole thing was they're like, yeah, it's your car. You're having fun. Also, like you have to do this, this, this and this. We're going to add another, you know, series of re you know requirements of you in three months that you don't know about yet. But that's like they're taking advantage of something that is still unsettled. This is settled and they're trying to unsettle it. Can right? I can I barge in here and be a bit of devil's advocate? Did that process work? Because even before, um, you know, even when conditions were better, 
it was still, Adam, and you described it yourself, a situation where you were a writer, you were doing much more work trying to get a job than you were once you finally got the job. And the job was lucrative, but like it's everyone in Hollywood is essentially competing to get this sort of the scratch ticket, you know, mm-hmm. to uh, to get this winning scratch ticket. And that's been the process for for many, many years. And I have been told over and over again, someone who wants to, someone who's in the WGA, but has never actually had anything produced, someone who wants to break into the business, has been told over and over again for years, this business fucking sucks. Every <laughs> business sucks. And right? so is there anything about the original model that is fundamentally broken, that no, does need to be changed, and not in the way the studios want to change it, but on writer's terms? I think there's a lot of truth to what you said. Um, but I do just want to say that, you know, there's this view that uh, people have of television writing as being a lucrative middle-class industry of being an industry where, you know, a creative, like, you know, Drew, why have you been trying to break into the industry in the first place? It's because you know that it's one of the very few industries in America where a writer can get paid period. That's why F. Scott Fitzgerald came to, you know, uh, came to Hollywood in the thirties and like drank himself to death while writing some terrible screenplays. Fucking Faulkner went to Hollywood too. Yeah. Exactly. Um, maybe I'm confusing F. Scott Fitzgerald. No, they, they, both both did. they definitely both they went. Both Anybody, okay. if you were a novelist and you liked alcohol and you didn't mind like having a suntan sometimes, that was very popular. Yeah. No, but I, I did. I, I was under the assumption, uh, that if you got a show made and you were a writer, you're rich. You're good to go. And I remember there was a writer named Alex O'Keefe, who's a writer on The Bear. And yes. he was he was sort of the, he's been one of the case studies. He's been interviewed by people saying, Hey man, I didn't get a fucking bank account when I'm getting a fucking Emmy for this show. Like I have no fucking money. And that's not how I envisioned uh success heavy air quotes to happen in Hollywood. There were, look, it's always been a rough business. There's always been a lot of problems in the business. Obviously, diversity in the business is, a, is an, an enormous problem, right? P- right. A uh, fo- fellow like Alex O'Keefe, who's a you know young African-American man, um, would not have been uh, in the, uh, would probably not have even, even gotten the job 20 years ago. And that's, that's, those are some of the ways that the Guild is trying to, you know, additionally change the system. Um, however, you know, I would say that writers in the past we didn't necessarily get rich, but we at least had a, a, a middle-class income. We could buy a home in Los Angeles or New York. You know, we could. We could <laughs> You're rich if you can do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's part of the broader economic picture as well, is that's become more and more unaffordable. Um, but the only reason that, that anyone thinks of it that way is because of the strength of the unions over the years. Um, and. To your point, though, Roth, why are they trying to disrupt something that's worked for 50 years or, or honestly, 100 years? It's because the companies have hated the unions that entire time. They've wanted to, to cut the legs out from under them and disembowel them. And so one way to view this strike is as one of those epochal battles. I'm not the guy that people ask about pronunciations, but yeah, I know what you're saying. Uh, you, you, you will turn out a, four, a, a $5 word every once in a while. But um, so this is one of those periodic battles where the companies are trying to break the unions. Why did they make us go on strike in 2007 to get coverage of the Internet? Because they knew that the Internet was the future and they knew that if they could make shows for the Internet without union coverage, that that would break the unions forever. Because then the unions would become, oh, you only got to deal with those old dinosaurs if you're making something for NBC. But if you're making something for Hulu and by the way, Hulu came out a week after the writer's strike ended. Um, if you, uh, if you're making stuff for Hulu, that can be all non-union. And so that would be the slow death of unions in Hollywood. And right now I think they're doing it again. They pushed us to the wall then in 2007, cause they knew they could break us right now. They're doing it because they know that if they can turn our careers into a freelance occupation where they pay one or two showrunners, you know, a couple million a year, those are the big examples who they, who they shower goodies on, but then everybody else is driving Uber and hoping that they get a script that month that can make, you know, 500 bucks. Um, then the unions are not going to have the power to challenge them in the future. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the reasons they're doing it is because they'll be able to fundamentally disempower labor. However, 
I, I still think that that is fundamentally going to ruin the industry because you're not going to have those great writers. You're not going to have Faulkner and Fitzgerald drinking themselves to death in LA um, or, you know, Aaron Sorkin or, uh, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge or, you know, great writers coming to Hollywood because they're not going to think of Hollywood as a place that they can get paid anymore. They're going to think of it as a place that writers get ripped off, just like, I don't know, journalism. Right. <laughs> no say, just yeah. like what makes the whole broader culture suck is that you see all this stuff get devalued one way or another yeah. and like the work does get worse you know what i mean like not to say that everybody you know go back and look at like the glories of the blog age you know of like 2012 to 2014 we were all having fun and there was still some money in it or whatever it still was like a thing you had to do at night after you got done with your real job but if there was a possibility that you could make your way up into a job that would pay you better then it mm -hmm. didn't seem for me i mean this was my experience of it it didn't seem like a waste of time at all. I love doing it. Right, you're and paying it was your sort dues. Of thing. Right, and it was like, and then I, it worked, you know? Like, I wrote a bunch of shit for the all for free, and then, like, a guy from GQ emailed me and paid me $1,500, you know, for a thing that I still had to write something for him. Oh. But it was like, that changed my life, you know? And yeah. then, like, but if those opportunities are gone, like, if you basically have a bunch of people scrambling over each other on the bottom rungs of the ladder, and then there's just a quarter mile of open air, and then there's Chuck Lorre and, you know, hanging onto a rung, like, yep. that you can barely even see above you. I mean, not just, like, demoralizing, but, you know, crabs in a barrel are not famous for the quality of work that they produce. Like, it's just not a way that people can work. Well, also, Adam, I, I feel like one of the, one of the problems here and maybe you can shed light on this, is that in the streaming era, era, I don't have a good idea of what a streaming television show is worth. A broadcast network show, okay, I know it's ratings. I know the ads rate it's charging. So right. I, know, I, I know how much a single show is worth because it's bringing in X. It gets syndicated uh, after 100 episodes, then I make tens of millions of dollars. And I know how to quantify a broadcast network show which pays extremely handsomely to writers even still. How do I sort out what a streaming show is worth when it's part, when it's folded into a subscription model? How do I know yeah. what, what, what it's worth? Well, I think you've put your finger on something fundamental, which is that as the companies are trying to, you know, destroy the way that we work to save money and claw it back for themselves, they've, they also destroyed a working business model, which was television and theatrical movies. People loved television. Yeah. I mean like, yeah, the ads were annoying and the cable company charged you too much. Right. But yes. it was like a good way to watch shit. And by the way, on demand already existed. There was an on demand button on your, on your remote control a decade ago. Um, but, uh, you know, Netflix came in, disrupted everything, uh, using a lot of investor cash, right. To nothing, uh, but to do so. It's still yeah, it's like that classic move where you can lose like a few billion dollars over the course yep. of a couple of years. And that like, they still lose yep. money, don't they? Yeah. No, no, actually They're Netflix is now, now Netflix is now quite profitable. Oh, uh, well, that's hard. Yeah. I, I, so, <laughs> I know, I know. And so they can't, they can't very important because we, they can't plead poverty to us right now. Um, but all the other companies chase them as well. And so to the extent that they're now having, oh, things are, it's a little bit rough in the streaming industry. Well, we didn't tell them to destroy a profitable business model, to buy each other, to do all these mergers, you know, to lay people off. That's on their weird decisions. Um, however, I do think what is happening now is over the next five years, um, you're going to see, let, let me just lay this out for you. Okay. The streamers have started to top out in terms of their subscribers in the United States. Netflix has already topped out. They're, they're fighting churn now. They're literally just trying to replace the subscribers that they lose every month. People subscribe like a month at a time. Wow, that's defector. That's defector's problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what do they need to do to fight that? Okay. They need to uh, make the price cheaper so they can get more people in. So what are they doing? They're adding advertising in order to reduce the price. What's going to happen when they add advertising? Well, they're going to need to uh, start publishing data. They're going to need to start uh, uh, having ad breaks because the advertisers are going to start calling the shots. They're also going to move from a binge model to a model where they want people watching all day. They're already competing for who's going to get the NBA, right, in a year or two. So they're, what else are they going 
going to need to have daytime talk. Oh, late night talk shows, uh, more live events. The, these companies are about to recreate cable television. I was going to say, like, uh, congrats on inventing television. <laughs> exactly. And thank God that they're going to do it because it's going to add a lot more, you know, I think regularity and predictability, as you say, Drew, where we're going to know what is a hit and what isn't. We're not going to have Netflix like publishing a, a leaderboard full of fake numbers that's just a PR exercise. 500 um, million people watch The Night Agent. It's unbelievable. Who would have guessed? It's been so <laughs> confusing to me, too, because it's like it's, they're clearly trying to mystify it. And I think it's clearer now because, I mean, there's a, a fucking war on. So you can see what everybody wants. But for the longest time, I never understood like what was in it for them. Like, where they would just say something really obviously fake about like Bird Box. They'd be like, "You watched it," and I'd be like, "I know I didn't." They'd be like, "You watched it two times." <laughs> I'm like, "That sucks. It's stupid." Yeah, this is very confusing. Like, I mean, it's the way that they use data is so strange. Like, I did. Uh, so they have a they have what they call a numbers call, and that's where you you know you as the creator of a show. I'm going to give you a little behind the scenes here. You as a creator of the show are entitled to a call with Netflix where they tell you how the show did. But they give you three numbers that they have clearly chosen from a basket of, you know, millions of numbers they could give you in order to confuse you because you have no context. So I think for the G word, they were like, so, you know, uh, uh, 1.2 million people watched the first 70% of the show within the first week. And you're like, is that good? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like and, and they're like, well, uh, here's another number for you. And and you realize what you start doing is you literally are just listening to the tone of voice of your executive, trying to figure out if they are happy or not, right? And so we left the call going, one of my EPs was like, you know, it, it seems like uh, it's it's not it didn't do so well that they're gonna like green light more of this, but it didn't do so badly that he's getting fired. You know what I mean? Right. That's like basically all you can draw from it is that, uh, by the way, the G word was a mini series. They weren't going to do more uh, anyway. Um, but you know, you, you're, you're, you're trying to like read the tea leaves because the numbers they give you are, are so nonsensical, but guess what? Johnson and Johnson is going to want to have numbers. Um, and you know, the, in the, in the early days of TV, they named the shows after the advertisers. That's right. The advertisers had so yeah. much power. Fucking right? and, and shit like that. Hell yeah. Exactly. And that's going to happen again because the, the advertiser is about to become the customer and that was always inevitable and that's going to change the business again, but hopefully it's going to, it's going to, you know, bring it a little bit more regular. Um, yeah. It sounds like it's going to change it for the better. I'm like, ah, oh, thank God for the brands. I used yeah. to hate advertising and now I'm like, fucking bring it in, man. Like load up us up with with uh with crest ads we like have, i will i will do one of those fucking verizon ads if it means uh you know me and all my friends get health insurance yeah i mean it's frustrating but it's like it's weird that it's like this thing that sucks is also the only thing that's ever worked and so yeah. you have to keep like working your way around on you know back to the same sort of thing again but I, yeah i look forward to whatever uh polydent presents csi <laughs> indianapolis <laughs> I want to ask you the big, big questions to wrap this up, Adam. But first, I want to ask you the stoner question, which is that could writers just like start their own studio? Yeah, hell yeah. Mm? <laughs> hell yeah, dude. Hit the I thought shit. the stoner question was going to be, are we all baked on the picket line? And the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, I mean, everyone's baked in America now. I, I don't even, I don't even sweat that. The picket line is a party, man. People are having a great time out there. I'm high um, right now, Adam. It's great. <laughs> it's terrific. You can really tell. <laughs> I mean, look, uh, uh, I've actually asked that question a lot because people know that story about like Charlie Chaplin, a United Artists, right. you know, in the in the 30s. That was the very beginning of the industry, you know, and. Uh, it is now a much more mature industry. I think what you guys have done at Defector is the modern version of that because you saw the business model, right? And you saw, hold on a second, we we are able to finance this and also bring the money in. And I'm honestly personally doing that in my own work. Like I am now making, like currently right now, because they're still stuck on the streaming model, no one's buying late night talk shows because they are all like, oh, how do we get people to binge them? And I'm like, you know what? In five years, you're not, you're gonna want new ones. Ones because you're going to have recreated cable television. But right now, if no one wants a late night talk show, I'm making one myself on YouTube, right? I, I'm, I'm doing monologues. I'm doing interviews. Um, I'm, I, I slow down a little bit because I've been doing so much strike work. Um, but uh, that that is, I think, the modern version of that is people making their own shit. Uh, Do you have a writer's but, room for that YouTube show? And is it paid accordingly? 
I bring, uh, I mean, I hire writers and researchers who I've worked with on Adam Ruins Everything um, on a freelance basis currently, but my goal is to build it big enough in order to, yeah, be able to pay those those folks weeklies. The Writers Guild does not currently cover YouTube shows, um, but I'm like, uh, you know, once the strike's over, I'm going to talk to them and see, hey, can we get this stuff covered? Um, SAG-AFTRA covers that kind of show now. Um, it's just hard, but the economics of it are different with like defector, Correct. uh, you know, paying somebody $500 for a blog is like actually fair in a lot of ways for like Correct. the work that it is, but paying somebody $500 for, um, sitting around for two weeks, writing a TV script is not, Yeah, it's a, it's a smaller business, but our hope would be that, you know, it, it starts to, it starts to grow. I think making a studio that, that makes movies and puts them on Netflix is pretty difficult because you know you're talking about a 50 million budget to make a movie and and that's a little bit hard for writers to raise all by ourselves on kickstarter not if you know enough serbians arms dealers adam that's true Drew's right. He's right. <laughs> very well connected adam time for the big stuff are you optimistic you can get a fair deal with the studios are you optimistic that solidarity within the union can hold because it seems like it's probably gonna last a while yeah i'm not just optimistic but i'm certain that we're gonna that we're gonna win uh, you know, first of all, so, so those stories that I told you about 2007, that was a different time, a different place. And I told you those stories to draw a contrast with where we are now. We're incredibly united now. Everybody is feeling this stuff. Even folks within our guild who maybe, you know, disagreed with some past actions are on board for this one. And everybody knows that we're going to be out here a while. The strike in 2007 took a hundred days. This one is likely to take around that long. It's only up to the companies how long it's going to take. We don't decide, but this is an old fashioned union strike. We're not on strike to send a message or to demonstrate our power. We're on strike to starve them out. We are depriving them of the content that they sell until they realize, oh, wait, hold on a second. We don't actually have anything without these people, <laughs> right? Like we make we make the only product that they sell. And so Ted Sarandos is sitting up there going, I think I'll be fine for a little bit, except that, hold on a second, he's not getting any Stranger Things until uh, he makes a deal with us. Um, and uh, Apple isn't getting any severance until they make a deal with us. And the fall broadcast calendar is still very important to NBC and CBS and ABC. And that's going to start to be affected very, very soon by the strike in just a couple months. Well, yeah, because- so, Production on Abbott Elementary, which our friend Justin Hopper works on, was supposed to start the day after the strike began. Obviously, it hasn't gone into. So they were already supposed to start producing a lot of these shows. Already. Yep. And, you know, that's going to hit their bottom line very, very soon. You know, when David Zaslav goes in front of his shareholders, he says, oh, the strike, I don't know, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. We'll be fine. But then what is he doing to juice his share price? He's telling them, I've got 10 years of Harry Potter lined up. I've got 10 years of DC lined up. Well, no, you fucking don't. Not right, right now. Um, and, you know, it, it's going to it's gonna take a little while for the CEOs to realize that because what, they, what they've done is they've outsourced their labor relations to this group called the AMPTP, run by a woman named Carol Lombardini. And Carol tells them, don't worry about it. I'll deal with the guilds. I'll keep the guilds down. I'll keep your labor costs manageable. Just don't stress about it. Just listen to me, right? But a couple months from now, the CEOs are going to start going, wait, who the fuck is this lady? Like, why Why is she telling us to sit tight? Because I'm losing money right now. And uh, that's when they're actually going to come to the table and actually bargain with us about the issues, about, you know, preserving the writer's room, protecting uh, folks from free work, protecting, uh, you know, putting regulations around AI, which we didn't even get to on this talk. Yeah, we didn't, but that's okay. Uh, I, go, go read any article. There's a million. I'm going to have an AI do that part of the podcast for us. <laughs> So, so um, that's going to happen, uh, and when it happens, uh, you know we're going to win because, right? You know we have an incredibly strong democratic culture. We have an incredibly strong union, um, and we actually are at the fulcrum uh, that a union needs to be in order to exert power in the way that we do. It's just going to take the companies a little while to figure it out, and that's kind of why sometimes you got to strike every fifteen years or so because you got to remind them, hey. Hold on a second, guys. You fucking need us. Right. I, I'm fired up now. This is This is just like when Bob Mould came on and said we were going to win the 2020 election. And then we fucking did. That's right. <laughs> you know how good you have to be as a guest to get the Bob Mould comp from yeah, Drew? Yeah, unbelievable. Really fucking good, man. <laughs> do we have time? Do you want to just remember a guy before we leave or something? Yeah, we, do yeah, some yeah. We, can, we can remember a guy every week. We remember an athlete, if you are not a Hall of Famer necessarily, but just a guy who makes something. Hey, I remember that guy. Your guy of the week, Adam. I don't know if you remember this guy. It's Jeff Reardon. You remember that guy? Oh, my God. Wait, the name is so familiar. A fantastic Bearded. relief pitcher, good beard, 
sort of barrel physique that old relievers used to have, but kind of yeah. don't anymore. Yeah. It's kind of uh, like if you had Bruce Suter at home, uh, that might be Jeff Reardon. Wow, that's a- Reardon was, he was a good player, though. He was a good pitcher. I believe he has passed. You're illuminating a guy quality by bringing in another guy. Yeah, so well, they're both, you know, borderline dudes. Adam, we did not warn you about the guy thing. We could have picked a screenwriter, I guess. We made him. Like that, we was... made him remember a guy last yep. time. I think I was like, no, I was like, do you like? Sports? I love it. <laughs> I love it. I don't remember as many guys as you do, but maybe I keep coming on the show and eventually. Yeah, Eric points you out remember... Joe Mandy is definitely a guy that we remembered, so that counts. <laughs> yeah, it totally does. Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Grugel is our editor. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services are by Multitude. And you can subscribe to Defector.com right now. Just go to Defector.com and hit that subscribe button. You can email us at distraction at Defector.com or even call us at 909-726-3720 and leave a message. That's 909-PANERA0. Adam Conover has been a fantastic guest. And Adam, uh, where can people watch your YouTube talk show during the strike. I, I mean, it's YouTube, but <laughs> yeah, you can search for me on YouTube. Um, I'm uh, uh, about to start doing new episodes in a brand new studio uh, where, where it's a, it'll be, it's a hybrid podcast YouTube thing. I also got some, some uh, YouTube monologues up there, uh, 20 minute long rants with lots of jokes and stuff like that. You can search YouTube for Adam Conover. You can subscribe to the podcast called factually wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, you can see Adam ruins everything on HBO max. And, uh, uh, the G word on Netflix and, you know, uh, yeah, go watch them there. All right. Hey, thank you so much, Adam. Or find them outside the uh, Netflix building, making people uncomfortable. Yeah, that's really Oh, absolutely. Cause. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Adam. And honestly, this was, this was really wonderful. And, and we can't thank you enough. And solidarity from one WGA member to another. Yeah, man. Fucking go get them. Thanks, dude. Thank you for the solidarity, brothers. 